ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Verley here. Coming up on the Country Hour today, we'll be talking harvest and that race to get as much grain off as possible before the rain arrives, if it hasn't already. You'll also hear from Grain Corp about its Victorian one-day receival record that was set earlier this week, pretty indicative of just how busy those of you harvesting grain have been. And, of course, stay tuned to hear from the Bureau just after 12.30. Lots to talk about weather-wise. I'd be interested to see or hear what, what the weather's doing at your place. You can get in touch on the text line 0467 842 722. Let's head to Rural News now, today with Jane McNaughton. Good afternoon, Angus. Australia's decision to sign up to the Voluntary Global Methane Pledge to cut emissions by 30% by 2030 means Australia is one step closer to introducing a methane tax on livestock. That's how the CEO of lobby group WA Farmers is reading the play, following Australia's pledge at COP28 in Dubai this week. Trevor Whittington says the livestock industry will end up paying for this pledge. The problem with methane is the biggest emitters of methane as agriculture with our livestock. And there is no simple solution other than you know, hand feeding cattle wandering around pastoral stations with uh, seaweed or which we keep getting promised, but, you know, it doesn't add up. So the only way we're going to be able to reduce our methane emissions for livestock is to reduce the number of livestock. How do you do that? Well, New Zealand and uh, the Netherlands uh, tried it. You put a methane tax on livestock and caps and you drive down the number of livestock. This is a disaster waiting to happen because someone is going to have to pay and it's going to be uh, livestock producers in Australia. And we'll be hearing a bit more about methane emissions that come from sheep later in the program. Murray Zircon has temporarily stopped its main operations at its mineral sands mine in the Murray Mallee after compliance orders from the South Australian government. It comes after the farming family who own the land at Galga raised concerns with the Department of Energy and Mining over environmental breaches of this agreement. Kevin Hydrich explains the situation. It's all the stockpiles we worried about, as you can see in the background, only allowed 17 hectares and are up to 50.4, if not more. So they're in breach of the pepper. They're not allowed to remove no more overburden at the moment or topsoil. They are working across Jacker Road. They weren't supposed to cross Jacker Road, but they did. So they're removing subsoil at the moment and stockpiling, and that's all got to get hydromulched. And you fought not to have this mine happen on your property? Yes, we did. We didn't want it to you. And uh, this has been going since... Well, I was 39 when they started drilling down the road, and I'm 64 now, so it's been going a long time, and the agreement we've got with them, and they could be here for another eight or ten, so that makes me an old man by the time they're out of here. It's not really right. Australia's largest canned vegetable producer has started importing corn from Thailand again due to a domestic shortage. As Brendan Long reports, the company says drought, bushfires and floods in Australia have led to supply issues. Two years on from dealing with supply shortages caused by natural disasters, Simplot Australia, which owns brands including Edgel, is grappling with a similar situation. 
In a statement, the company says drought and bushfires led to corn shortages in 2021. This was unfortunately followed by widespread floods across eastern Australia and the Riverina region in 2022, again resulting in supply challenges. Fresh vegetables from our Australian farming community will always be our first choice. Of course, if there simply isn't enough to go around, we might need to look further afield. The majority of Edgel products are made in Simplot's factory at Bathurst, New South Wales, by a team of over 200 people. Growers for Simplot were contacted about the shortage but declined to comment. And finally, if you're a baker, a brewer or a winemaker, then yeast is probably your friend. You might source your yeast through a local retail or commercial channel, but did you know that you can capture it naturally? Wild yeast can be a bit more unpredictable to work with, though, but it can bring unique results, including when it comes to beer. Professor Ben Schultz is with the University of Queensland School of Chemistry. There's wild yeast everywhere in the environment associated with animals and and plants and in the soil and in the water, and it's really only a very small selection of yeast species which humanity has has managed to domesticate and use for things like beer and and wine and and, uh, bread production over the millennia. Right, so we've got yeast strains obviously that are used in commercial production or we, you know, home brewers might use. These are simply other strains that haven't, as you say, been domesticated. Yeah, that's right. So it, it turns out that if, say, you take a grape harvest of a grape um, and uh, press them up and then leave those juices to, to ferment, the, the bacteria and yeast that were naturally on the surface and inside of those grapes are still then in the grape master grape juice and they'll begin to cement that, so to, to eat the sugars and produce um, ethanol, alcohol, and carbon dioxide, and then eventually turn that into wine. And so then at the start of that fermentation, there's a, a huge diversity of different microbes that were present on the grapes, and it turns out that there's only um, a really few of those microbes that can survive um, all the way through to the end of that fermentation. And so one of those is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and, and that is then that, that really hardy yeast that survives all the way through that fermentation. Um, that is the yeast that has been domesticated um, and then we can use um, in a targeted way for, for wine production, but then that's also brewer's yeast and baker's yeast. And that concludes this week's Rural News. Thanks, Jane. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News. On the text line, Kevin at Myrtleford says, Good afternoon, Angus. The odd sprinkle of rain here at Myrtleford today, but nothing in the rain gauge. Have a nice weekend, Kevin says. You too. Leone says, G'day, it's so hot and windy here at Cavendish. The air is moving like a hairdresser's salon on its busiest day. 0467 842 722 is the text line. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Grain harvest has been full steam ahead this week to get as much done as possible before the next bout of rain. So how are farmers tracking along? Annie Brown jumped in the header outside Rutherglen to have a chat with Andrew Russell. Um, For us, the well, just finished, Just want the minute. You're right. <laughs> um, no, Sam, we've still got a little bit more to go. Are you able to come down here, please, because I'm full? Yeah, yeah, no worries, I'm going Andrew, this morning we're in the header, we're harvesting as, as we speak, you're doing an interview and, and harvesting at the same time, yep. multi-skilled. Tell me a little bit how harvest is going uh, so far. Uh, yeah, so we're probably, 
be getting close to two thirds through, I think. Started with our canola harvest. It was down on what we'd hoped. Uh, the first half of this year was very wet and the canola really suffered during that period. But the second half of the year has been was sort of a lot kinder and um, the crops did recover. But now we're into the cereals, into the wheat, and it's, uh, it's, we've, we've got some really unexpectedly good crops. So it's, it's a good environment at the moment, Annie. What are you seeing in terms of yields and quality? It's all looking pretty good? Yep, yep, yields and quality are good. Uh, we've got a bit of protein. Um, we've, uh, you know, yields, um, sort of the high fives, uh, into the sixes even, which is, you know, that's exceptional. Uh, and yeah, look, that that has um, that's taken some management though too. Like um, you know, we were fairly robust with our nitrogen and fertiliser nutrition or fertiliser nutrition package, hoping that we would the season would be kind. So it's it's sort of come together, which is which is good. In terms of harvest itself, you know, a big rain event right across the state of Victoria last week. How yeah. much rain did you get, and what impact did that have on you here? Uh, so we had 50 mils and we were lucky, uh, you only had to go you know, really 20 k's west of us and they had up to 80 mils or more. Uh, those sort of rains, uh, nothing good comes from that at this time of year. The 50 mils really, um, we managed to finish our canola prior to that and also all of our hay, so that was a good result. Look, it hasn't affected the wheat. Uh, our wheat was, it's only really just ready, so that's... We've just been lucky, really. We really don't want any more major events, uh, rain events. You know, we're going to get the odd shower here and there. In fact, they're talking about, you know, a shower. We can see a little sort of shower to the south of us, which is probably over Wangaratta at the moment or maybe over the Springhurst Hills. But, look, it's just part and parcel of it. So, aside from the crop in harvest, yeah, like how's, how's the rest of it been? You know, there's, there's always issues around, you know, getting trucks in and roads and <laughs> we already talked about the weather, but yeah. and starving and labour, has it, it been this year? Firstly, on the labour, we have, uh, we've got three backpackers working for us this harvest. Uh, all three of those backpackers have come back to us. Uh, last year, we had an Estonian couple um, and they've come back. To, to do this harvest with us and that's they're a fantastic couple and we've also got a, a young Japanese guy who helped us earlier in the year with sowing. It is an issue, look Annie, it's um, attracting people to agriculture. I'm, I'd love to see um, agriculture sit more firmly in the, uh, in the education syllabus early on because there's some great opportunity for young people in, in this industry. I've, um, I often listen to a lot of people who have done a lot in agriculture over time and some of them accidentally found themselves in agriculture not having any background in agriculture not growing up on a farm or anything um, and they they've loved it and they uh, if only they knew I know the roads has been a big issue for again everyone around the state as well not special here to the northeast but yeah. um, how's access been this year it is a problem. Um, I sort of feel for the local councils, to be honest. I mean, we had, we've, we've had three wet years, which has been devastating to the roads. We've got a lot of heavy vehicle using those roads while it was very wet. The reality is, is that nothing good can come from that. And um, I think we're full, so I've got to start wandering back. All right. Um, <laughs> we got the end of the road. Um, but, 
yeah, look, roads are really important. We've got three trucks and four drivers, um, and we all sort of swap around a bit, but we really briefed our drivers to just make sure slow and steady wins a race. Um, if we have to go a bit slower, just because the roads are a little bit ordinary, um, but it good to see some more federal and state government funding there to help out. Sorry, I'm just starting up again. Our chaser bin's turned up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the harvest in general, I think for everybody, has been reasonably good. How many harvests have you done? Uh, this is my 27th, I think. Yeah, so, uh, and I entered the industry late. I grew up on a farm, on a dairy farm, but... Um, I actually uh, did a, 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 a trade. I'm an electrician by trade, and then uh, joined my fam, my wife's family farm. And so I was 30 when I started in this industry. So, uh, or 28 actually. Yeah. So a little bit of a late starter, but I wished I'd paid more attention when I went to school in the early <laughs> years because I had to go back and study, um, which I wanted to do, in, and, and I studied agriculture and. Um, yeah, it's one of those funny things. Really wished I'd paid a bit more attention. To I think then. we all wish we paid a bit more attention. <laughs> I think we did. As you get older. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, thanks for taking us along in the header for Harvest. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure, Annie. Will you be done by Christmas? Ah, uh, that is always the goal. That's We're the goal. always aiming to finish by Christmas. It just means on Christmas Day and Boxing Day you can really sit back and relax. Um, There'll be a few sheep to feed, but they're easy. Easy, easy. Yeah, easy, easy. That was Andrew Russell, mixed cropping farmer from Lilliput and GRDC Southern Region Panel Chair, having a chat with Annie Brown in the header cab there. Yeah, I think quite a few people were on track to finish harvest by Christmas, but these rains are throwing a, a spanner in the works. Some weather on the text line. Robert says the weather in Huntley is fine and warm, around 28 degrees, very little, if any, rain, and a gentle breeze. Thanks for that, Robert. 0467 We'll stay on the grain harvest now because GrainCorp set a receival record this week, receiving 229,000 tonnes at its Victorian sites on Wednesday. That's indicative of how hard grain growers have been working to get as much done as possible before more rain arrives today and across the weekend. Nigel Lotz, General Manager of Operations with GrainCorp, says it's been a massive week. Yeah, look, a busy week. Obviously, uh, those huge rainfall downfalls last week, we were certainly very nervous of what the startup would look like after that. Um, it's been surprisingly good. Uh, the volumes coming in have been huge. Uh, to give you an idea, we've had... Um, Last couple of days, 800,000 tonnes. Uh, one day on Wednesday in Victoria, 229,000, which are all-time record for a region in history for Grain Corp uh, for a seal in one day. So things have been going good. We're certainly um, a bit nervous about what's coming at us. From a quality point of view, we've had falling number of machines running for, particularly for barley, but and the, and the quality team have been doing a good job just monitoring where, what the, what the, samples have been showing and then you know backing back from a per load to a, a bin sample but yeah a busy week um and a good week and uh yeah a bit nervous about what this rainfall ahead looks like there's been varying reports that it could be three to 30 mils um that'll be you know, will that be the tipping point from a quality point of view that's why we're a bit nervous yeah okay and but with that rain last week uh 
grain that's come in after it, how has the quality held up, particularly in terms of those falling numbers tests? It's surprisingly good. When we look at in terms of the sheer volume we received over this week, um, there's, there's only been a small uh, amount of issues. So that's that's very pleasing. Uh, the challenge just comes, you know, it's handled, the crop has handled, you know, one significant event, how will it go with, with what's coming? So that's our challenge going ahead for, for us and for growers. Because even a less significant follow-up rain can can have a really compounding effect on quality? Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like it's just going to drizzle for a couple of days and it's just that humidity, it just exacerbates that germination process. So that's that's ultimately the challenge. So if you have a weather event, it's best to get it over and done with it and then have some hot, windy, dry weather and, and then away you go, you might get away with it. Just taking a step back on that falling numbers test, what, what is that actually testing? Look, it's just it's testing, you know, basically what the, the effect of the weather damage has had on the grain and essentially whether the germination process has started. And ultimately, this goes into the, the millable capability of that grain. Uh, in essence, it's a value driver. Uh, it is, uh, I realise it's pretty emotional for the sites from a grower point of view when these tests start. Uh, the technology we're using now is better than what we've had. They are quicker tests. But at the end of the day, this is the best way we can do to get the value to the grower that they deserve for the grain um, with those tests to get the higher grades. But yeah, ultimately, we need to protect ourselves. We're, we're underwriting the quality at the end of the day, so it's really important as you know, what we, we know what we're taking in so we know that we're going to execute it on the outload. How far through, obviously, we're about to be delayed again, but how far through the Vic harvest do you think we are? Look, it's hard to say. The, the pleasing thing, and I've been out in Victoria uh, through the Wimmera and down the south through the Western Districts today, right over to South Australia this week, um, it, there's a lot of grain out there. It's, I feel like the Victorian harvest is going to exceed expectations. Um, a lot of the growers you speak to have all said that their yields are exceeding their expectations. We look at um, even this morning, um, Victoria is heading towards 2.7 million tonnes, southern New South Wales 2.3. Uh, these are these are big numbers from where we thought we may have been. But yeah, I, I, how far to go? Is it halfway? Um, there's certainly, I hope there's a good few million left. Um, there's certainly, in terms of driving around the big area I've been through, there's a, there's a lot of grain out there. And going back to that uh, one-day receival record for Vic, I think you said 229,000 tonnes on Wednesday. Uh, obviously a great season, but as well, just in terms of how much grain can get harvested and delivered in one day, that, that must be increasing all the time with the, the massive jump in capacity of some of the, the harvesting gear out there. Yeah, it's twofold. One, you've, you've got the, the push for the efficiency of the new harvesting gear, and then it's the ability to get these volumes of trucks into the sites and out of the sites to get back to the the paddock and bring it back in again. So it's 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 common events investment. Um, certainly over the last couple of years we've been focusing on one, you know, expanding key sites to get you know, more segregations in and also our mobile equipment to get the get the grain in faster from an instantaneous capacity point of view at site. So um, the the drive also comes from operating hours. So we, we try and work with the grower as much as possible. We always say in all these calls the communication is key to the site manager so they know what's coming and what they need to do to accommodate the needs of the grower. So you've uh, been flexible on your opening or, or closing hours? Oh, look, we're always as flexible as we can be. We need notice, obviously. We've got the cost uh, efficiency uh, matrix to deal with ourselves. And also, in, look, the labour's been pretty good this year, but in some areas, then if, if you don't have the labour, then there will ultimately be a fatigue limit that, that caps us out. But uh, remember, we're totally aligned with the grower. We want to get the grain in and we want to do a great job from a, their customer experience point of view. Uh, so we'll, we will be flexible. The key is you know, getting that notice and that continual communication from the grower to the site manager, very critical. And in terms of fatigue management, always one silver lining of rain for the grain growers is they do get a spell and 
for your cruise as well, I suppose. Showers rolling across parts of Victoria now, more on the way tomorrow. So uh, maybe people will get a few days off. Yeah, that's right. It does give it a chance to uh, get some fatigue days in to give the team a spell. Uh, growers also appreciate that. Also, a bit of a catch-up from a maintenance point of view, site hygiene, just general uh, housekeeping. So there is that benefit. Um, and look, as you say, everyone's, you know, they've been flat out. Um, growers everywhere were flat out late as possible. So, um, yeah, it, it inadvertently brings a little bit of relief, I suppose. And a, a treacherous day, really, in, in some areas today. Very hot and very strong winds. Uh, do, do sites have to close if conditions do get too bad? Yeah, look, that's a real challenge. Um, our bunker operations, are, however efficient they are, becomes dangerous with high winds. Uh, the challenge then becomes if you've got a bunker pulled back, you're receiving grain, there's a weather front coming and the wind's too high, we can't pull it back and you get the rainfall, uh, that, that creates a damage opportunity. So this is a piece that we've got to manage on the on our sites. Um, and I understand some, you know, some of the growers may not appreciate that sometimes, but yeah, we've, we've got to protect that grain and we've got to act early. Uh, if you leave it late, um, these tarps, are, they're like a big spinnaker, like a big sail for anyone has been sailing. And um, you, you can't beat Mother Nature from that point of view. And it just puts our team in too much of a risk position. So we work to make decisions early. We communicate early. Um, and then we, we work on options. Sites where there's permanent storage, that means we can keep receiving generally. Um, that gives us a bit of a backup plan. But, yeah, it's it's pretty precarious. And as you said, Nigel, into next week, showery and particularly humid weather uh, could, could cause lengthy delays. But I suppose we'll just uh, wait and see what the week brings. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was hoping that we'd just, uh, the way harvest was heading was we had such a good run before last week. I was hoping that we'd, you know, all get it done and knock off early for Christmas for everyone's sake. Uh, but this is the, the challenge of harvest. You never know what you're going to get. And that's, that's part of the challenge and uh, the thrill of the ride. That was Nigel Lotz, General Manager of Operations with Graincorp. Andrew on the text line says Graincorp could improve those receival numbers if they improve their operations. They are simply too slow in my area, says Andrew. 0467 the text line. We have been talking a lot about water over the past week. The federal government, of course, passed the Murray-Darling Basin Plan extension last week. That opened the door to more buybacks of irrigation water. But Victoria has long been vocal in its opposition to buybacks and this week there has been speculation about whether it could try to restrict the sale of water from irrigators to the Commonwealth. Vic Water Minister Harriet Ching visited Sunraysia recently and gave a press conference. The first audio you're about to hear is Elsie Kennedy reading to her a question submitted by an irrigator. Some Sunraysia irrigators have raised some concerns um, that the Victorian government might seek to interfere with buybacks of Victorian water from this region, potentially by reimposing a cap on transfers out of districts or seeking to direct the buybacks to favour gravity district irrigators or other measures. That's a question I've been sent from an irrigator. What's your response to that one? I'm looking very carefully at the bill that has passed the Senate this week to understand how this collection of amendments uh, that the Commonwealth needed in order to pass its legislation will shape the future of the the, um, the way in which the Commonwealth seeks to enter the water market. And again, um, I come back to the point I made earlier. If the Commonwealth says it doesn't need permission, then why is it asking for permission uh, and saying that it'll withhold money for environmental projects unless that happens? Just coming back to the question, though, so... Will Victoria look to put any kind of restrictions 
on being, irrigators being able to sell their water back to the Commonwealth. Well, the Commonwealth says that Victoria um, doesn't need to do anything for it to enter the water market. Um, I'm looking really carefully at the legislation. And again, there were um, many amendments that were incorporated in order for the Commonwealth to pass its legislation. I'd like to see what they look like, um, particularly in terms of studies, in terms of timeframes and resourcing. The Commonwealth hasn't actually said how much money it will put into buybacks. And we know that buybacks do harm. Not only do they take water out of the consumptive pool, but they also make it more expensive for people to stay in the water market um, as licence holders, particularly where we get that ongoing expense and that escalating expense for infrastructure because some people opt out. There was a letter to the editor today in in the Sunraiser Daily from um, an irrigator who suggested that um, selling part of someone's allocation uh, regarding buybacks um, could be used to undertake efficiency projects and, and then increase efficiencies on farm. Is is that ha, has that kind of um, suggestion ever been put to you that uh, some buybacks, if they're minimal, might be a good thing for efficiency of water projects in Victoria? And irrigation. Well, we know from the last round of buybacks that occurred in Victoria, where. 550 gigalitres of water was taken out of the consumptive pool, that it caused job losses, that it caused a disproportionate impact and cost upon food producers across regional Victoria. We know that in certain parts of the north, um, Redcliffs, for example, we're talking about job losses of 76% uh, in that one particular part of the world. And these are really well-established concerns that the community has based on lived experience. This is not simply simply something that we've, we've pulled out of a hat to argue against the imposition of buybacks. The reason that we oppose buybacks is because we well understand the damage that they do, we well understand the harm that they cause, and they don't actually deliver the benefit uh, that, uh, that is being spruiked uh, around various parts of the basin. We know that large amounts of water if they're delivered to one part of the basin, will inevitably improve the environments in that part of the basin. We also know very well, and everyone should be under no doubt, that we cannot take water from the southern basin up to the north. We cannot put water from the Murray up to the Darling. And it's those iconic images of the Darling that I think have prompted a large and really important discussion around improving the environment, particularly against the challenges of climate change and drought. But the Murray and Victoria's high reliability water can't address those concerns. What we can do with projects like the VMFRP is get water to the floodplains where it's needed. What we can do is make sure that 14,000 hectares of Victorian environment is protected against the worst of climate change and that we can continue to see the health of species like black box and red gum develop that resilience that they need as the planet becomes hotter and drier. That was State Water Minister Harriet Ching there, resolute in uh, the fairly long-standing position of the government that it is opposed to water buybacks. 28 to 1, we better head to news headlines now with Laura Mayers. Good afternoon, Angus. A Moorable Shire councillor is advocating for the introduction of a council-run snake removal service to reduce the risk of snake bites to residents. Councillor Rod Ward introduced a motion during a council meeting this week asking officers to investigate the possibility of running the service. The motion passed with a majority vote, but two councillors argued against it, saying it's not council's role and would be an unnecessary cost. 
Councillor Ward says the neighbouring shires have a snake removal service and there's a risk inexperienced people could attempt to remove snakes themselves due to the cost of calling a professional. Southwest Healthcare has refuted data by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, which suggests the number of semi-urgent and and urgent elective surgeries performed at Warrnambool Base Hospital has declined in recent years. The AIHW report explored emergency department care and elective surgeries, but has been criticised by some health services as being incomplete and without context. A Southwest Healthcare spokesperson described the data as inaccurate and incredibly misleading, saying it is not correct to suggest Warrnambool Base Hospital's surgical output is lower than previous years. A northeast landholder says Goulburn Murray water service fees are not fairly priced. It comes as a group of residents compile a written submission to the Essential Services Commission claiming they're being charged nearly $200 annually for infrastructure and services they don't receive. GMW Water Delivery Services General Manager Warren Blythe says GMW is confident its current model is fit for purpose after conducting an independent review. And six people were caught driving while on drugs and an equal number over the blood alcohol limit during a police blitz in Bendigo. The State Highway Patrol ran the road operation for four days, ending on Sunday evening. Police say they also caught 220 people speeding, 17 unlicensed unlicensed or disqualified drivers, three people using their mobile phones and impounded four vehicles. Police say there's no excuse for getting behind the wheel under the influence and are urging people to slow down. And for more of your news and stories, you can head to abc.net.au forward slash local. Thanks, Laura. Laura May is there with news headlines. Let's head to the Bureau now. Senior forecaster Christy Johnson is on the line. Good afternoon, Christy. Good afternoon, Angus. Lots to talk about weather-wise today, Christy. Just, just set the scene for us of what the state's experiencing weather-wise right now. Yeah, look, uh, hot, dry and windy, I guess, is the summary um, for for most of the state today. Uh, we do have a severe weather warning for damaging wind gusts, which is out at the moment covering uh, most of the ranges right from the Grampians across to the northeast ranges and the New South Wales border. Um, and we have actually seen a couple of gusts down uh, around the Otways at uh, Mount Jellybrand as well, up over the 90 kilometres an hour mark too. So, um, look... Very windy out there. Uh, we are starting to see thunderstorms developing through the Mallee at the moment. Um, they may become a bit more widespread through northern and uh, western parts today. Um, any storms that do develop have the potential to bring drag down um, some damaging wind gusts as well. So watch out for warnings around that. With the hot, dry, windy conditions, uh, we do have a heat wave warning. So that's out for the northeast. Um, the reason it's just out for the northeast the northwest, for example, is hotter, um, is that uh, we will see a cool change moving through tonight and the heat will contract more to the, the northeast of the state where it will stay quite warm for the next few days. So that's why the heat wave is across a few days rather than one hot day. But um, that is out, uh, although I note that the Chief Health Officer has issued a heat health alert for the Mallee as well. Um, we have, with the, that hot, dry, windy uh, weather, we have extreme fire danger in the Mallee and the Wimmera, so total fire bans um, for both those districts and high fire danger through most of the rest of Western and Central Victoria. Uh, so a lot going on. Um, there is also a high thunderstorm asthma risk up in the Mallee today uh, with those um, 
potentially damaging wind gusts out of thunderstorms and, uh, and high pollen. So to be aware of that, it's moderate risk in the southwest as well. Uh, in the Wimmera weather is also a risk of storms of pollen um, averaged across the, the district is lower. So, uh, so no um, risk there as a district risk, but obviously if you're close to somewhere with lots of pollen, uh, take care as well. Um, so yeah, pretty hot today, as you probably across 45 top temperatures forecast for Mildura and Swan Hill, most of the rest of the north in the mid to high 30s. Uh, and in the south, mostly into the low to mid 30s. Uh, so pretty hot, but we do have that cool change coming. So uh, the change is uh, just moving into the southwest of the state now, uh, and it will move across um, western districts, probably more so uh, into the later afternoon and evening, um, and then moving through central districts at some point during the overnight period and through the east, probably tomorrow morning. Uh, it does weaken out as it gets into the northwest, which is why we keep the warm temperatures at places like uh, Albury and Wangaratta um, for the next few days and why the heatwave warning is out for that area. Uh, that will give us some, um, as I say, cooler temperatures tomorrow. Um, it will be not as windy tomorrow, although we do have still the potential for thunderstorms uh, across the eastern half of the state, particularly during the morning as that trough is moving through. But even into the afternoon and evening, we could see the risk of storms continuing over Far East Gippsland and, uh, and the eastern ranges. And some of those do have the potential to be severe um, and uh, with damaging wind gusts as the most likely um, risk there. So uh, just watching that as well. But for most of the state tomorrow, uh, it will turn to a more of a rain um, situation with a rain band expected to hang across basically from the Wimmera uh, through the Central District and into Western South Gippsland, um, parts of the, the northern and uh, eastern parts of the Southwest District as well. Uh, could see rainfall totals around about 10 to 20 millimetres through that rain band and some areas may even see a little bit more, even 30 or 40 millimetres. So uh, we'll be watching that. Those we upper totals, Christy. Have... Sorry, those upper totals. What, what areas are you talking there? Look, it's going to depend exactly where the trough that's developing over, uh, well, it's over New South Wales, Western New South Wales tomorrow and then moving into South Australia. Uh, the location of that will sort of determine where exactly that rain band sits and where it might get the heaviest falls. But probably it's likely over some of the more elevated areas that would see the, the higher totals there. Um, but as I say, it, it could be variable and, and there is the chance of getting sort of 20 millimetres or more across most of that, that rain band area, uh, although probably more likely in the 10 to 20. Um, we are watching particularly over western South Gippsland because, as you're probably aware, there are still minor flood warnings out uh, for the, the Thompson um, there. And, uh, uh, and we're uh, not expecting the, um, the rainfall totals uh, the Latrobe, sorry, mental blank. Um, and uh, we're not expecting the rainfall totals over Gippsland to cause more flooding, but it might just slow the receding of the floodwaters that are there at the moment. And there will be some river rises with it, but um, probably not reaching warning thresholds unless we do get some of those significantly higher totals over Gippsland. But something that we're watching. Uh, so quite, quite wet through those parts of the state tomorrow. Um, top temperatures getting up to around about the 30 degree mark up at Mildura and Swan Hill. Up in the northeast, as I mentioned, a bit warmer, 34 for Albury-Wodonga, 33 for 
Wangaratta, across the rest of the state, mostly into the high 20s, mid to high uh, 20s in the north and, uh, and in the south, looking around the high teens or maybe just into the low 20s. So significantly cooler except for in that far northeast area. Uh, on Sunday, the low pressure system that's over New South Wales moves across into South Australia. Our winds turn a bit more southeasterly. Uh, we'll still see potentially some shower and thunderstorm activity. Um, the thunderstorms particularly over the uh, northeast of the state, where again there's still that risk of damaging winds. Um, but the shower activity probably mostly through the south, and it will be hit and miss just a couple of millimetres here and there, uh, and most likely um, for Sunday. Uh, Monday continuing, the thunderstorm activity becomes a bit more widespread on uh, Monday as the winds go more easterly and we pull down some humid air from the Coral Sea. So quite unstable, humid and uh, a little bit tropical for Monday and Tuesday with showers and possible thunderstorms right across the state both days. Warming up, so on Monday the temperatures are getting into, well possibly back up to 40 degrees at Mildura into the 30s through the rest of the north and the mid, low to mid-20s in the south. And then on, uh, on Tuesday, getting up into the low 40s up in the northwest, the high 30s elsewhere through the north and in the south, the high 20s or low 30s. So warming up. Uh, Wednesday, another warm day uh, with the winds picking up from the north ahead of the next front, which moves into western Victoria on uh, probably Wednesday afternoon on the current timings and then that will cross uh, the east on Thursday, finally flush out that uh, sort of hot and humid weather and, um, and give us some settled weather maybe for Friday next week. But, yeah, a lot happening in the next week. Today, though, probably the, the most severe day in terms of the fire dangers and the damaging wind gusts uh, and the potential for severe thunderstorms um, and the thunderstorm asthma Tomorrow, more looking at, at that rainfall and then just a bit unsettled and showery and stormy sort of on and off hit and miss through for until the middle of next week or late next week. And those first few days of, of next week, it sounds like, yeah, they will be pretty pretty humid, pretty steamy. Yeah, look, the humidity will come up. Um, it does look like they're bringing that moisture down, as I say, from the tropics. So, so yeah, it'll feel a little bit more sticky than, say, today where it's a, a dry uh, dry heat over the state. And that, that temperature drop-off that you talked about with, with the change coming through, uh, not really across the north of the state, but I'm in Horsham just looking at that. I think 35 for us today and then only 19 tomorrow. So it sounds like the temp really is going to fall off a cliff. Yeah, it is. So uh, so that front, look, it's, it's not really a strong cold front in the sense that, you know, there's going to be a, a really rapid temperature drop as it hits this evening. Um, it will drop a bit, but the cooler air is sort of a little bit delayed behind that first wind change and will really come over us tomorrow and that's where we'll see those, those lower temperatures. So yes, it is, um, it's going to be a, a lot of parts of the state probably their maximum temperature tomorrow will be uh, lower than the min we just had overnight last night. So um, yeah, it, it is going to be a big, a big shock. Um, but then it does recover, that coldest air moves away quite quickly and we recover a bit for Sunday and then, as I say, warming up into the, the first half of next week. And with rainfall, Christy, as, as you said, the, the bulk of the falls tomorrow, but with those showers through next week, will they only be small, sort of one or two mil totals or, or should we expect more than that? Look, uh, 
we're probably expecting widespread falls of, um, I guess, like two to eight millimetres each day, um, with thunderstorms potentially producing sort of 10 to 20 millimetres. But because it will be hit and miss, there'll be some places that probably won't get anything. Um, but yeah, the regular shower activity, it's probably that less than 10 millimetres sort of um, expectation. And then if we get the thunderstorms a little bit higher. Um, but yeah, it'll be, it will be a, a more hit and miss pattern. Um, and some places may only get a millimetre or two or nothing at all. That rain coming from thunderstorms. So <laughs> who knows, I guess. That, that's right, and it's not uh, it's not the sort of thing where the thunderstorms are on a front or something that we can track. Um, you know, there is always a little bit more chance of getting a thunderstorm if you're about the ranges where there's a bit extra uplift. Um, but really, they're this sort of pattern where they could just pop up anywhere across the state. So, um, yeah, impossible to say which areas might see those storms uh, as opposed to any other parts of the state. And that, that hot weather today, Christy, I think 45 for Mildura, and then outside of Victoria, but looking out into pastoral SA, a lot of towns there, sort of 47 forecast top today. Yes, yeah, look, it, the the heat wave is right across the country. Um, we've got, um, in South Australia, they're copying a brunt of it in terms of they've got catastrophic fire dangers uh, across five of their districts and, and uh, extreme across a number more, and um, yeah, very, very hot temperatures uh, inland and uh, and very strong winds. Um, New South Wales also seeing some very hot temperatures and strong winds. So, look, yeah, it's not just Victoria. Um, the whole sort of eastern or southeastern part of this, the country is uh, is copping this weather. And then South Australia will cop the bulk of the rainfall um, over the weekend as well, with uh, so turning to potential flooding through there. So a lot going on weather-wise right across the country, particularly then with the cyclone on the way too. So, <laughs> so much happening. Better let you go and keep, keep tracking it. Thanks for that, Christy. Thanks, Angus. Christy Johnson there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau. Where, as she said, lots happening weather-wise. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. And with those temperatures, as Christy Johnson from the Bureau said, in, in southwest New South Wales, soaring into the mid-40s, an irrigator has raised concerns that another fish kill could be imminent. Southwest Water Users Association Chairman Howard Jones says he wants the New South Wales government to put an embargo on water being pumped out of the Darling River to allow fresh flows to reach the Lower Darling. So we're sitting on the knife edge of, of what I think is... Uh an imminent fish kill, much the same as we've had the previous two times. I believe from what I'm reading with the Water Info page in New South Wales Water is there are a number of streams in the upper reaches, whether it be Queensland or northern New South Wales, that have flows in them. They're only small flows, and I guess most of those would be diverted already into private dams. What's left there should be embargoed, uh, which means the Minister has the right to close off irrigation access in circumstances that present themselves in relation to the health of a river. It's simply that. So the embargo says what's in that river now, what's flowing in that river now is critical for the river's health and the creatures in it, and irrigation should not be taken. Simple as that. New South Wales Water Minister Rose Jackson said in a statement in response to your concerns, and I'm quoting here, unfortunately a temporary embargo on water take upstream is not recommended as the additional water would take too long to reach this area. What are your thoughts on that? 
that's not the way it should be looked at. When you get back into a situation where you've got low flows or no flows, then any any fall of you know a thousand whatever I saw two and a half thousand I think was in the Castle Ray and one of the others, that's got to go somewhere if it's not all into someone's dam. So Rose's uh, position basically is she's quite happy to let that water go to be irrigated with annual crops at the expense of connectivity in the river. The Water Minister also said, and I'm quoting, she is continuing to address recommendations from the Office of the New South Wales Chief Scientist and Engineer. Now, those recommendations were handed down in September after fishkills had happened in March this year. Does that address your concerns at all? But we're faced with a dilemma now. It's, it's not wait two months for the boffins to sit round and come up with a solution. This is a minister's decision, whether it be Rose Jackson or whether it be Penny Sharp, I think they both should be there, uh, saying uh, we're in charge, the, the Water Act says what it says, uh, and it's, it's time that we uh, observe that and made decisions. And that decision should be to put an embargo on any take until such time as the water quality uh, in the Bowen Darling River uh, down to Menindi, uh, Menindi and down below Menindi to the junction at Wentworth is in a better position to cope with uh, anyone taking any water anywhere. How soon are you worried that we could start to see um, declines in water quality and, and a risk of fish kills? Uh, look, look at the temperature this week. We're moving towards 40 degrees uh, uh, tomorrow, I think, and towards the end of the week. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see them floating to the top by Wednesday. Now, uh, an embargo is not going to fix that straight away, but anything, any opportunity to push the water through that system should not be ignored by our government. That was Southwest Water Users Association Chairman Howard Jones speaking with Elsie Kennedy. And in a statement, New South Wales Water Minister Rose Jackson said, with hot, dry conditions expected to continue, we know the risk of more fish deaths over the coming weeks and months remain high. On the text line, a couple of texts about water buybacks. Lindsay says the biggest driver of economic decline isn't water buybacks, it's economics, i.e. returns less than the cost of production on commodities. I think people would argue that water buybacks would be part of that equation, Lindsay. But thanks for your text. Tom at Winslow says the speculators in the water market should be the first to be asked to sell to the government, having sold their water, and they should be blocked from re-entering the market. This should slow or hopefully even stop the prices escalating. Would still be, though, as, as Harriet Ching said, a reduction of water available for irrigation in the consumptive pool. Uh, Ian says, Angus, it won't be 45 in Swan Hill today. It's 31 at the moment. Cloudy, damp and no wind. Uh, long way to go, I suppose, but we'll see what happens, Ian. Uh, thanks for all of those texts. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. What levels of methane emissions come from sheep? And what roles do genetics and feed sources play in influencing those emissions? Those are some of the questions Central West New South Wales farmer Mark Mortimer is hoping will be answered in a University of New England project taking place at his Tullamore property. He says he thinks it's an exciting project. Yeah, at the moment, so we've got a team from Armadale Uni and DPI on the farm and they're measuring methane output on 500 ewes. So they use a, a system called PAC, which is a portable accumulation chamber, which is just a a big first best spot, and um, they use water to seal it at the bottom. So it's just a little tray that's got a moat on it, 
um, you, know, you lift the box up and pop the sheep in and, and put it down and it uses a nice water seal. So, yeah, I have to bring those sheep in and have them on feed in the yards the day before. So they're, um, you know, 12 hours on a, on a known feed source and then they can measure 12 sheep at a time. So every hour, 12 sheep get taken off the hay and then rotate and come round through this measuring system and they've got to be in the chamber for 40 minutes so they get a, a methane, uh, oxygen and carbon measurement when they go in and they get another one 40 minutes later when they come out. Okay, so the measuring device is, is measuring that uh, methane that's accumulating after having come out the, the front end of the sheep? Yes, that's correct. So it's, it's obviously all adverbs. Um, and they're actually using three separate devices at the moment. So they're still in their, I guess, discovery phase. Um, so they're wanting to know which device gives the most reliable measures. And you said uh, a known feed source. Is it just based on the one feed source at the moment or are you trialling the emissions from different feed sources? Yeah, right. So at the moment it's just one. And obviously um, for the project they're looking to get methane measurements from 10,000 sheep. So that's a combination of industry resource flocks and commercial farms like mine. 5,000 of those sheep have to have a feed intake measurement with them as well. So that's a, you know, they're a little bit more on the feed but it's not specifically about different feed sources. So this project's about the genetics of methane emissions and methane at the moment, I've seen different papers that suggest that the heritability of methane somewhere between 10 and 25%, depending on the paper you look at and how many animals they had available to test, which means 10 to 25% of the variation we see in methane is due to genetics. Okay, so on that point, I was going to ask if the, this work could eventually inform or could eventually be used to develop a breeding value that people may use when it comes to selection, selecting for, for less methane emissions. But if it's not a lot about genetics, then perhaps not? That's exactly what they're trying to do. Um, <clears throat> so there's plenty of traits in sheep that have a lower heritability, like I, I breed for reproduction in my sheep. And, the, you know, the heritability of reproduction is like 10%. So just because the heritability is low doesn't mean we can't make good changes in those traits. It just makes it a little, you know, we've got to be a little more careful, that's all. So even though it's, it's a, you know, most of the variation isn't due to genetics, genetics still does have an important part to play. And the beauty, if you make it a genetic change, the changes you can make are cumulative and permanent. So if we, you know, if we improve the genetics of our sheep now, we'll still get the benefits from that improvement in 100 years' time without doing any extra work. It's, you know, it's locked into the animal's DNA. And for you, Mark, what's the motivation to be involved in the project? <clears throat> uh, I guess part of it always like new things. Um, so there's the, you know, the, the interest, you know, it's a new device, new data, something we haven't looked at. What can it tell me about my sheep? Is there synergies between, you know, methane's a tremendous energy source. Are the sheep that aren't capturing that methane not as productive? You know, so these are questions that I'd like to answer. It might be a really good win-win. And do you think, Mark, I mean, there's already a big spotlight on emissions from livestock, uh, fairly or unfairly, but do you think if that spotlight becomes more intense than being uh, having data around what emissions may or may not be coming from your animals could be useful to you? Um, yeah, absolutely. The more we know, you know, the more you can combat 
you know, fair or even unfair accusations. You know, it's, without the data, we don't have, you know, we, all we can do is have an opinion and you can't act on just simply an opinion. But sometimes you have to defend against opinions and the only way we can do that from our perspective is through knowledge and data. What do the sheep make of it all? Yeah, well, that's, um, you know, our sheep get used to um, coming in and seeing some novel apparatus in the sheep yards. I notice, you know, once they're in the chamber, they're really quite calm. So, you know, if I look at a small confined space from a human's perspective, it feels like I'm locked in. But typically what happens is while the sheep are in the pen and we're moving them around, they're a bit more stressed. The moment you pop them in the chamber, that chamber's actually separated us from them, not the other way around. So the moment they go in, they're actually quite calm. And you can walk down the front of the chambers and put your hand down to the front of the chamber and they'll all lean forward and try and sniff your finger through the perspex. That was Central West New South Wales farmer Mark Mortimer speaking about that University of New England project to try and capture and measure methane emissions from sheep particularly uh, and possibly creating a breeding value that farmers may use to select, selecting sheep that perhaps produce less methane. And interesting, earlier we heard uh, from WA Farmers, I think it was, with concerns that there could be a methane tax introduced at some stage. So obviously that, if that was to be introduced, you wouldn't need to be trying to minimise your methane, but good to have a chat with Mark. Uh, Stephen on the text line says, one would assume that faster growth, earlier maturing sheep would have lower emissions as they are converting more feed into energy to produce protein and fibre. Thanks for that text. Stephen, if you're quick, 0467-842-722 is the text line. Just the one market today, Hamilton Sheep with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Angus. Hamilton agents charted 19,500 sheep today, an increase of 1,500, where the quality was very good, with the majority being light to medium weight trade sheep with less heavyweight crossbred ewes and more merino sheep on offer than the previous sale, resulting in all weights and grades being made available. All the relevant processes were present and active in a market that was again very strong and animated as the sale progressed, with heavy sheep lifting $10 to $15 per head and all other categories remaining firm. The general run of mutton realising between 180 and 250 to average around that $2 to 210 cents. Crossbred ewes made to a top of $90, well covered merino used to 78 and the better merino weathers to $88. Hoggets made to 100 and rams made from 5 to 25. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks for that, Chris. And yeah, the the mutton job probably not improving as much as the lamb job, but good to hear that all processes present and active, as Chris said there. That's what you want to have a good sale. Oh, well, that is just about it for today's Country Hour. Gav McGrath will be in the chair Monday to Wednesday next week, and then I'll be back Thursday, Friday, before Warwick Long returns the following week. Remember the website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. Have a great weekend. News time now. It's one o'clock.